Hey, well, good morning, Kettlebrook. Good to be with you all here at Jackson. And, um, yeah, I just love coming down here to Jackson. And I love being with you guys because in so many ways, you guys are really uh, demonstrating and seeing some of the most exciting things that are going on in Kettlebrook today. You guys are actually showing us up in West Bend what, it, what it's like to be missional, what it's like to be on mission with God in your community. And I'm um, just so glad to be here and, and to have Ryan lead this group and lead the rest of us in uh, living missionally with God. So um, it's great to be here. Um, we're going to try to end at um, right at 11 o'clock because we want to laugh at all the people who come in here who didn't set their clocks back, right? Okay. <laughs> so did you guys go, you all set your clocks, right? Yeah, I don't mind setting the clocks back. It's just, it, or forward, forward. It's, yeah, we'd really be messed up if we set them back, right? But it's putting the clocks back on the wall. You, like, you ever do that? Like there's this one little pinhole, and you've got to get it like on that nail, and it never seems to go on there. So anyways, I digress. So weep with me, the lost language of lament. Weep, weep with me. Why would we want to do a thing like that? You know? Lament, sorrow, sadness. Why, why spend time talking about such, you know, depressing topics? You know, it's March. <laughs> you know, spring is in the air. Kind of. You know, March Madness is just about to begin. You know, it's like, why would why would we take time to, you know, just to talk about this kind of depressing stuff? I mean, this is the church. We're supposed to be positive and encouraging right i mean isn't that what the radio station says that we're supposed to be you know we're supposed to be positive and encouraging you know um it was actually late october uh, 1999 when elmbrook church was going to have uh, their missions festival big week where they kind of spend a whole week just kind of focusing on what god's doing in the world and elmbrook church if you've never been to elmbrook church is down in brookfield it's kind of we're kind of related to them and, um, and it's a huge church. Like, I mean, it's a huge church. I mean, back in that time, there was probably like 6,000 people there having four services. And they were having their, their annual missions fest. And one, what they, how they wanted to kick off this missions fest is, uh, is they wanted to parade all the missionaries kind of across the, the, the stage and have them up there. Uh, and, then, and then they wanted to focus in and kind of zero in and interview uh, one family that they, they wanted to talk about, kind of talk about what god is doing through their ministry and stuff like that and the family that they had chosen to interview uh was this year okay and so we were in about like kick this whole week off like we were it this is kind of a big deal all four services they're going to interview us very first in front of um the entire church the the problem was is that in the week leading up to the missions fest uh the youth pastor at this very large, very influential church, was found out that he was abusing some of the boys under his care. And he subsequently fled from the authorities. Uh, he barricaded himself into a hotel room in Baraboo, and as the police closed in on him, he took his own life. And the church was just in trauma. Uh, nothing like this had ever happened before in their history. Um, people were upset. 
they felt betrayed. Uh, they had lost a beloved pastor as well. And, uh, and, and the news media was just outside their circle, and they had their vans with the satellite dishes parked outside in the, in the parking lot all week long. And people were calling for uh, the Missions Fest to probably be uh, postponed, if not canceled, indefinitely. And, and we were supposed to be, like, first. Like, we were going to be first on the stage, on the platform, after this whole thing had happened. And I'll never forget what happened that day. Stuart Briscoe, who was the, the lead pastor, pastor at the time, <clears throat> stepped up onto the stage and just brilliantly said, hey, he acknowledged everything that had happened and the pain and the betrayal and the grief that people were in. And he said, uh, some people are asking that we just postpone or cancel Missions Fest. And he said this. I'll never forget this. He said, he said we're not going to cancel Missions Fest. In fact, what I believe God wants to do is he wants to use the pain and the grief and the agony that we are currently experiencing <clears throat> to draw us and drive us closer to the heart of God who sees and experiences the brokenness of, the, of our world and the pain in our world every single day. And that perhaps, perhaps God wants to do something redemptive and powerful in our current agony that we're in that he could not do any other way if things were going really well. Why talk about lament? Why talk about things like pain and suffering? Why read about Israel's weeping over the destruction of Jerusalem? One reason is because that is the situation that much of the world is in today. This is the ongoing reality of how many people live all throughout the world. Just turn on the BBC, you know, website, and you'll see. This is how people live. They're, much of the world is living around a great degree of pain. But you don't have to go to places like Syria or Afghanistan or Kashmir or any place like that to see it. We're all carrying around a lot of pain. Last week, Troy was talking about Lamentations chapter 1, and I was sitting in, uh, in my seat, second service, looking around, and I know the stories of the people who are immediately around me. I mean, I'm one of the pastors. And I know that the, the guy who's sitting directly across the row from me just lost his brother to ALS the past six months. Young man, you know, his 50s. That's young. <laughs> young is getting older all the time, you know. Um, the, the people next, sitting next to them are going through a divorce. Uh, the gal sitting in front of that couple lost her husband to a heroin overdose. And the couple sitting next to her just had a grandchild born with a brain uh, deformity. And their grandchild is blind and cannot hear and will be uh, special needs the rest of his life. We're all carrying around. We're carrying around a lot of pain. And we could choose to acknowledge that pain or we can just kind of choose to kind of disregard that pain and and just pretend like it doesn't happen so what i want you to do <clears throat> is turn to the book of lamentations turn to page you'll find it page 574 and uh what we want to do is is we don't want to become 
shallow and superficial in our faith and interactions with others. This is why we need a book like Lamentations. Lamentations is, is kind of like a guide. It's kind of like a curriculum. Owen's been teaching us how to grieve because we really don't know how to do this really well. You know? It's a, Lamentations is a poetic lament. Or it's a cry of anguish and sorrow over the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 586. Um, here's a picture, artist rendition of the destruction of Jerusalem. It's kind of hard to see here. But the city is burning, and uh, the Babylonians have just swooped in. Here's some people right here in the front from Israel. And there's just all sorts of pain, all sorts of trauma. It was, it was the most traumatic event in the life of Israel is this, this 586, when the Babylonians came in and destroyed Jerusalem. And to make matters worse, this was happening to them as a result of their own sin. Okay, This is something that they were responsible for. If uh, We read in chapter 1 over and over again, it had said several times that this is, a, this is definitely a result of the sin. It says, the Lord has brought the city grief because of her many sins. Jerusalem has sinned greatly. My sins have been bound into a yoke. The Lord is righteous, yet I rebelled against his command. I am disturbed, for I have been most rebellious. So again, again and again and again, in Lamentations chapter 1, it's very, very clear. The author is pointing, pointing out that this is the result of Israel's own sin. But it's perhaps one of the hardest things for Israel to comprehend and to grasp is that the hand of the one who's inflicting this horrific punishment on them is not necessarily the Babylonians. The Babylonians are kind of like the glove, you know, that their punishment is coming from. But the hand inside of the glove is none other than God himself. It's God, their God, the covenant-keeping God, Yahweh, who's the one who is doing this to him. Now, this, is, this isn't some sort of knee-jerk reaction by God to some momentarily bad behavior that Israel had exemplified this was a result of generations of systemic institutional communal sin that went back for centuries and god had been patient with them and is now kind of exacting his justice but what we're going to find out today as we work through this second of five poems in the book of lamentation is that even though is that god is the one who has brought this destruction and disaster upon the nation of israel that God's chastisement or discipline for sin is not punitive in and of itself, but it's purposeful. It serves a purpose to get us to cry out to him in desperation and to return to him in dependency. Let me just say that again. God's chastisement or discipline for sin is not punitive in and of itself, but is purposeful to get us to cry out to him in desperation and return to him in dependency it starts out right here it says how the lord has covered the daughter of zion with the cloud of his anger he has hurled down the splendor of israel from heaven to earth he has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger without pity the lord has swallowed up all the dwellings of jacob in his wrath he has torn down the stronghold of the daughter of, Ju- of judah he has brought her kingdom and its princes down to the ground in dishonor. What do you notice kind of right away in these first two verses of this lament? Who's the subject of everything that's going on? 
It's the Lord. The Lord is the one who's doing all the activity. He's the one who's behind it. It says, how the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with, Zion with the cloud of his anger. He has hurled down the splendor of Israel from heaven to earth. Without pity, the Lord has swallowed up all the dwellings of Jacob. And it's in his wrath he has torn down the strongholds of the daughters of Jerusalem. He is the one who is doing this over and over and over again. Now, to be sure, to be they deserved it, okay? God is, is, is just doing what he has always said that he would do if they rebelled against them and persisted in that rebellion and went and worshipped the gods of the nations around them. I mean, way back in Deuteronomy chapter 28, he said that he was going to do this if they turned up. Before they even set foot into the land, before they even, even arrived there at first, God says this. He says, however, if you do not obey the, word, the, the Lord your God and do not carefully follow his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come down on you and overtake you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the ends of the earth, like an eagle swooping down, a nation whose language you will not understand, a fierce-looking nation without respect for the old or pity for the young. They will devour the young of your, of your livestock and the crops of your land until you are destroyed. They will leave you with no grain, new wine, or, or, new, or olive oil, nor any calves. And is on and on he says, they will lay siege to the cities throughout your land until the high fortified walls in which you trust fall down. They will besiege all the cities throughout the land the Lord your God is giving you. This is before they even ever entered the land. God is saying, if you persist in this, this is hundreds and hundreds of years before it actually happens. God said, if you persist in rebellion, this is what's going to happen. And now, in response to realizing that it is God who is the one who has caused all the suffering they're experiencing, all this pain, and that it is exactly because of their own sin and their own failure and their rebellion, the author just breaks down and laments. He weeps at this realization of what is just hitting him, and it hits him like a ton of bricks. I remember when I went to um, visit a man from our church in the county jail. Um, he uh, had been, he's there, landed up there because of crime he had committed. Actually, several crimes that he had committed against his own family, and he had caused a lot of pain and a lot of anguish to his own family. And he was busted for it. And um, I was the first one to go and visit him in the county jail. And when he saw me, he just broke down and sobbed and wept and wept. And just, there was just tears and snot everywhere. And he just, as the realization of what he had done and his guilt and his shame just crushed upon him like an avalanche. And, and, and now he was being led away in an orange jumpsuit in handcuffs by a police officer. And, and this is the situation that Israel is in. Israel is in the exact situation. They're realizing everything that they had done wrong, and they are now being busted, and they're being led away in an orange jumpsuit by a police officer. But the judge and the jury and the police officer in this situation is none other than their father God, the very one who led them into the land uh, to begin with. And, and it's, it's not good. If you look at verse, uh, verses 4 and 5, verses 4 and 5 talk about that, that God is not compared to a father. He's compared to an enemy. Is there verse 4, it says, like an enemy, he has strung his bow. His right hand is ready 
like a foe. He has slain all who are pleasing to the eye. Verse 5, the Lord is like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all her palaces and destroyed her strongholds. God is the one. He's like an enemy against Israel, the one who's taking aim at her and making all these things happen to her. Now, this is really, really bad. And he just kind of is overwhelmed with the emotional avalanche of this whole experience, the writer of this. And in verse 11, he says, My eyes fail from weeping. I am in torment within. My heart is poured out on the ground because my people are destroyed. He basically says, I can't even see straight anymore. I am crying so much. See, this is why we need the book of Lamentations. It's almost like a guide, like a tutor to help us learn how to appropriately grieve, giving us like a language and a vocabulary for the experiences that we are just so uncomfortable with because we don't like pain. We almost don't know what to do with it. Like that's my favorite quote from like Daffy Duck. You know, Daffy Duck, he says, I'm not like other people. I don't like pain. You know, <laughs> and but we're, we're uncomfortable with pain. We don't know what to do with it. Um, my counselor what once explained to me, I have a whiteboard here. You're going to have to bear with me. Um, once explained to me that human emotions are kind of like a sine wave. You guys remember the sine wave? That was that thing in trigonometry that we never figured out, you know, sine and cosine and stuff like that. I know that I have a always have a marker mark with you. So yeah, so my counselor tells me that that the human ex- emotional experience is like a sine wave. You have your you have your high highs, you know, the times that you're you're extremely happy and, and content and, and and all of that, and then you have your low lows, times of loss, times of, of grief, you know, times of you know of just just pain that are real and but the, the thing is is that we really don't like these low parts you know we don't like the loss we don't like the grief we don't like the pain and so what we just rather do is just kind of lop them off you know pretend as if they don't exist at all but what research has told us and what what psychologists tell us is that if you lop off the bottom half and you medicate yourself and re- refuse to allow yourself to feel the grief and the pain in your life. You know what ends up happening? Is you don't lop off the bottom half. You just, you just condense the whole sine wave. And we become less feeling individuals. If you don't allow yourself to feel the grief and the loss and the sorrow in life, you're not able to experience the high highs of life as well. And you just end up compressing the entire wave spectrum of emotion. And this is what we see in the the life of Jesus, is that Jesus was a man, and he was the best expression of what it looks like to be a human being, right? But Jesus experienced all kinds of emotion. He was was full of joy, it says in, in John, you know, at one time, but he also experienced grief. He wept. He said, my, at one point, he said, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. Okay? He was just overwhelmed with grief at times. 
He got frustrated <laughs> at his disciples. He, he was, he was an, an emotional person. And so Jesus kind of exemplifies to us what it looks like to be a human being, which is why we need to know how to lament and how to grieve and not to ignore the pain of the world, which is why it's also really good and fitting and appropriate for us to kind of hit the pause button of life, slow down a little bit, and allow ourselves to reflect and, and even sit in the brokenness of our world. God wants us to be fully emotional beings, even as he is a fully emotional being. And part of that is to not ignore the pain in the world, not to ignore the injustices and the unpleasantries of life, but to face it head on and to allow yourself to feel just kind of a tiny smidgen of what God feels every single day. But there's another reason why we lament, and there's a clue that comes at the very end of this poem in verses 18 and 19. In verses 18 and 19, it says this, The hearts of the people cry out to the Lord. O wall of the daughter of Zion, let your tears flow like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief, your eyes no rest. Arise, cry out in the night as as the watches of the night begin. Pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint from hunger at the head of every street. There's, this is what God wants Israel to do. His, his punishment, his chastisement of them is not punitive in and of itself, like he takes pleasure in taking them away and seeing them destroyed. What he wants is for them to return to him. He wants them to cry out for him. He says, In verse 18, it says, the hearts of the people cry out to the Lord. That's what he wants. This is the redemptive of what's going on. And then verse 19, he says, says, pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. This is what God wants from the Israelites. And he is systematically, deliberately stripping them everything that they have so that they'll turn back to God in reliance and dependence upon him. See, they had become so caught up in the gifts that they had forgotten the giver. And they had gotten so caught up in the blessings that they forgot the one who was blessing them. And they were finding all their satisfaction in the stuff of life that God had given them, that they had forgotten all about their God. And so now he's stripping them of everything that they have, everything that they have, so that they will turn back to him. And when they turn back to him, they will find that he is sufficient. That he's everything that they need, their soul needs. So this is why for centuries, followers of Jesus have intentionally, purposefully, during this season of Lent, chosen to deny themselves of things so that they will turn back to God. See, God intentionally stripped the Israelites of everything they, they owned so that they would cry out to him, that they would pour out their hearts to him. And God is not doing that to us. I mean, we still live in a nation that even though we're, you know, 5% of the world's population, we consume close to half of its resources. So we have it pretty good. But is there something 
that we can intentionally, deliberately, as an act of our will, not because it's a law or you have to do it, just deny ourselves of something so that we can turn back to God. Like maybe you choose during this season to stop watching television and instead turn that time into a time of prayer or of worship. Maybe you choose not to go on social media during these this season so that just as a reminder that I am not going to disappear as a human being if I don't go on social media, you know. It might be actually very good for you. Maybe you stop going to the, to the mall or going shopping and engaging in retail therapy to numb the emptiness that you feel inside of us, realizing that I don't need to go buy another thing so that I feel good about myself. Instead, what my soul is actually craving is God himself. And when I turn to God, I will find that he is sufficient. I don't know what it is. It's just this is something, a practice that followers of Jesus have practiced for centuries. And so what I want to just kind of leave us with is the fact that in this, in this lament, God stripped Israel of everything so they, they would turn back to him. They would turn back to him. And it, in that in and of itself is a good thing to do, that we would get in touch with the pain of our world, and understand this is something that God sees every day, and it's not a bad thing for us to feel as well. We're going to take a time of communion right now. And as we do this, I just want you to reflect on the fact that this is exactly what Jesus did. <laughs> Jesus denied himself and stripped himself of every single comfort that he had in heaven in order to step into our world. Into our, in order to step into our story and experience the full measure of the brokenness and the pain in our world. Okay? So that we'd be connected back to his Father God. And if, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, you consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus, we don't care what church you go to, you don't care what background you are, we invite you to, to partake in this with us. But this is what we're going to do. We're going to put some reflection questions up on the board or up on the on the screen and just want to give you guys some chance to just think and reflect on those questions and after you had a few moments to do that feel free to come up to the table here and take the bread and take the cup and then bring it back to you uh, with you here and wait hold on to it because we'll all take it together when everybody's done so why don't I pray and then we'll take communion Father God we uh, have to admit that, wow, this, going into this book of Lamentations, for me, it's, it's hard. Um, we don't like to engage in the unpleasantries of life. We don't like to acknowledge things like grief, pain. Uh, as Americans, we just want to soldier on through that. And as Christians, we think that you know we're supposed to be always positive all the time. But as we look at your son, Jesus, we see a person who's the best expression of a human being. And he was so full of emotion. The highs, the lows, the grief, the pain, the sorrow. He felt all of it. And during this season, as we anticipate your resurrection from the dead on Easter Sunday, we would pray that and ask that you make us deeper 
people. That we would be able to engage in the pain of the world. That we would see and feel what you see and feel every single day. That we wouldn't numb ourselves to it. That we wouldn't medicate ourselves to it. We wouldn't ignore it. But we would enter into it in a very real and profound way. And that, God, you would do something in us. That you wouldn't do or couldn't do if, if we chose not to deny ourselves of anything. So we give this time to you. Father, meet us in the bread. Meet us in the cup. Remind us of your great, great love for us through your son, Jesus Christ. Pray this in his name.